This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for March 17th, 2013. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. The message is by Father Ron Baird. We come today to the fifth Sunday of Lent. Next week is Palm Sunday, so we're kind of in the home stretch, if you will. It becomes easy when you've been wandering autopilot, and you know you sort of turn on the cruise control, and then you stop paying much attention to what's going on around you. But that would be a mistake, because it can lead to the kinds of sins that we normally commit. Because isn't that really what our normal life is every day? I mean, we sort of just go on autopilot and we do the things that need to be done and deal with whatever crises happen to come along. But the intentionality of being one with God in Christ is never at the forefront unless something happens to draw it to our attention or unless we happen to just think of it in the moment. And so autopilot can be very dangerous. Now, we sort of see an example of this in today's gospel lesson. We have this interesting story of, of Jesus who has now come to Bethany. Now, Bethany is about um, two miles from Jerusalem, not very far. It's where uh, Jesus was staying uh, for the week of Passover, and he will stay there all week long up until the Last Supper, and then after that he'll go out to the Mount of Olives where he'll be arrested. And so he's staying there, and when he stays in Bethany, he's staying with Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He was in the tomb. Jesus raised him from the dead. Um, and he, Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, live there. Martha's, remember, the one who, who's the doer. I'm sure, and Mary's the more uh, one who likes to sit at the feet and study, which is not real pleasing to Martha anyway, given that that means she gets to do more work. Um, but And so here, you know, Jesus comes to this place. It must have been a, a wonderful reunion. I'm sure glad, Lazarus was glad to see him. And and so they they throw a dinner party. That seems like a normal thing to do, right? Hey, Jesus, come down. Why don't everybody come on over? We'll have dinner. You know, cocktails are at five. You know, <laughs> you know, all these people show up. And so they have dinner for him. And while they're at dinner, it says Martha's doing what Martha always does, which is she's serving them. And then it says that Lazarus is there at the table. And then suddenly Mary goes into the other room and comes out with his jar full of this expensive ointment called nard. And she takes it and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. Now, that's a rather odd thing to do if you think about it, but even more so, then she stands up and she takes her scarf off, because heads should always be covered by the women of Israel, and exposes her hair to all the men in the room. Now, I know that you all don't think too much about that, because you know, women today don't cover their hair the way they used to. But for that time, that would be the equivalent of a woman standing up and taking off her top in front of a bunch of men in a room. That, that would be essentially what it would be like. I mean, it would be shocking, to say the least. And it doesn't stop there. Then she lays on the floor and takes her hair and wipes up the nard with, from Jesus' feet with her hair. Not with the cloth, the scarf that she took off, but with her hair laying on the floor. Imagine that. You know, you can, it's one of the few times that we see that 
Peter was silent. I mean, he couldn't come up with anything to say to that one. He was like, and here she is just wiping her hair. And for the first time ever in Scripture, we hear from Judas Iscariot. You know, up to now, he's never challenged anything Jesus has said. You know, John and, and James did. Remember, they were arguing about who's going to get to be the best. And when Jesus said, what were you talking about? Oh, nothing, nothing. We were talking about anything. And remember, Peter did, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this should never happen to you. But Judas had never done anything until now. And now he says, what in the world has this woman done? She should have taken that and sold it and given it to the poor. Now, he says she should have sold it for 300 denarii, which gives you a little bit of an idea of how expensive this perfume was. In today's dollars, that's the equivalent of about a yeah, $30,000, $35,000 bottle of perfume that she pours all over his feet. And Judas is scandalized by this. You know, not to mention the fact that she uncovered her head and was wiping it with her hair. And, and he's, he's furious about this. And Jesus' response is even stranger. He says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Because she did this to prepare for my burial. Leave her alone. Now, that's an interesting comment, given that he had just raised Lazarus from the dead the last time that they were there. And now he's talking about death again. But in this interchange between these people, we begin to see a little bit about what faith in Christ is really about and about there are signs of how we can do it the right way or we can put it on autopilot and go the other way. Let's look at Mary first. Mary has always been the oddball. I mean, she's kind of weird. I mean, she she's just not a girly girl, you know? I mean, she doesn't do what girls do. As a matter of fact, she has a tendency to do what the boys do, which is really irritating, not only to the other girls, but to the boys. Um, now, my theory, I don't know about the girls, but my theory about the boys is probably because she was better at it than they were, but... Uh, <laughs> And that's always irritating. But, um, and so here she is. She wants to sit at Jesus' feet. Remember when Martha got mad and said, make her get up and help me? He says she's chosen the better part. To sit at the feet of a rabbi is to be a disciple, is to be someone who is being taught, it's to be educated. And that wasn't a woman's place. They didn't do that. You know, because what they need to be educated for? They weren't going to be running any synagogues or anything. So what would the point be? And so, but... She pays no attention to that whatsoever. But even more than that, what she has done now is radical. Because by this action, she has shown herself to be two things which are totally unacceptable. She has shown herself, one, to be a prophet, and two, to be a priest. Now, let's take the first and say, why is that such a big deal? There are other prophets and women prophets in the Scripture. You know, we have Huldah and Hannah and a bunch of them. Well, because she's a different kind of prophet. She's not just the kind of prophet that says things. She's the kind of prophet that acts out the message of God. And that's what she's doing here. You know, it's like Ezekiel, if you read them when they were in captivity in Babylon. Ezekiel to show that the people shouldn't get too comfortable, you know, in their setting. 
you know, being enslaved in, in Babylon because they were sort of settling in. You know, it's kind of the way it was going to be for the rest of their life. They weren't ever going to go anywhere. And so they were getting used to the idea. And Ezekiel goes, no, no, you can't do that because God's going to deliver you. And so what he does is he goes and he's cooking dung cakes so that he can tell the people, you know, why is he cooking dung cakes? Not dumb, dung, <laughs> like animal excrement. You know, why in the world would he be doing that? To show them that what you were, this food that you were eating here in Babylon is dung. You're settling for dung. When God has more planned for you, don't get settled in here. And so many of the prophets do prophetic actions to show Israel. They don't just say the words. They do things that are shocking to get their attention. I would have gotten mine, I have to admit. And so she's doing the same kind of thing, a shocking sort of visual to show what's about to happen. And, and she shows herself, interestingly enough, as probably the only one of the people who had been listening to Jesus who ever heard what he said. Because why did he come to Jerusalem? To die. Lazarus says, let's throw a dinner party. Which seems like a normal reaction to somebody dying, right? <laughs> Somebody's going to die, let's throw a dinner party. But she comes out and anoints his body for burial. She's showing the world. And not only that, but when she anoints his body, she doesn't just do it with, you know, resins and kind of normal stuff. She does it with the most expensive thing you can find. Because this nard was undoubtedly from the Himalayan mountains, which was a long way away, which is why it was so expensive. And so here she is pouring all of this out on Jesus' feet. And then she does something else which is even more radical because she doesn't just, you know, sort of pour it on his feet and take her scarf and wipe it, you know, wipe his feet off. She lays down on the floor and takes her hair to rub it, which signifies two particular things. One is this closeness, this desire to be one with Jesus in his death as her hair touches him. You know, for those days, a woman's hair was a very intimate part of her person. And for her to be doing that, you only did that kind of thing. You only let husbands touch your hair. But what she was saying was that she wanted to be one, just like a husband and wife are one flesh. She wanted to be one with Jesus who was about to die in his death so that she could become one with him in his life. And the second thing that, that she does in doing this is that she lays down to do it. And what that shows us is this incredible act of humility, a recognition of, of who she is and who she is before. That in, in the sight of God, what more could we do but grovel on the ground? Because in and of ourselves, we have no worth. Our worth is only what God gives to us. And it's a physical manifestation of that. Not because she felt worthless, but as a sign of showing who she was. And that's what people did. You know, they said they went and paid obeisance to a king. What they would do is they would lay down on the ground. Sometimes when priests are ordained, you see that they will come forward and they will lay and um, straight forward with their noses on the floor and their arms stretched out in the cross. And part of it is that it's an act of obedience. 
to Christ and the person who represents Christ, the bishop who's about to ordain them. It's, it's a symbolic representation of it, a, a prophetic action, if you will. It's also a priestly action. When the Queen of England was made queen, if you can remember that far back, one of the things that happens is that she is anointed. You have to have, you know, a, in that case, the Archbishop of Canterbury, but, but you have, a priest has to anoint. Only priests can anoint in that way. It's a priestly action to anoint someone, to prepare them. And here she is doing what is unacceptable in that society. And so is it isn't terribly surprising that Judas is shocked. I mean, she's violated so many cultural norms that, you know, it's like, where do I start? And so Judas picks the one that is most important to him, money. He says, why in the world is she wasting that money? She could have sold that. I mean, can you imagine how many people you could feed on $30,000? It'd be a lot. They didn't have nearly the population we have. I mean, $30,000 would have gone a very, very, very long way to help the poor in those days. And yet, Jesus looks at him and just says to her, leave her alone. Now, what is that about? Why is he telling him to leave her alone? Why isn't he saying, oh, no, no, don't do that? You know, you, no, you know, shouldn't do that. That's not right. You know, go sell that and help people. Because that's the nice thing to do, isn't it? I mean, that'd be the, the responsible thing to do. But when he looks at Judas and says, the poor you will have with you always. You will only have me for a little while. The poor you will have with you always. Now, a lot of people looked at that, and they'd like to say that Jesus said, Oh, good, that means that we don't have to get rid of, you know, we don't have to worry about poverty. Well, that's not what he's saying. Some people look at that and say, see, that's the mandate. We're supposed to go out and eradicate poverty. I always like that one because that actually says, I don't know how you can eradicate poverty if they're going to be with you always, but it seems like an oxymoron to me. But And so it's neither one of those. What he's really doing is talking about in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the Lord says, the poor will always be with you. Therefore, you must care for your brothers and sisters. And that's what he's quoting back to Judas. But what's interesting is this other side of it, but you will only have me for a little while. Now, what's that about? Why is he saying, but, but you will only have me for a little while? And how's that juxtaposed to the poor who are going to be with him always? Well, obviously, he knows he's going to die. Some scholars believe that this is what pushed Judas over the edge and made him decide to go turn him in. You know, that, that that was too much. That this man was so had become so self-obsessed that he was willing to let people put $30,000 perfume on his feet. And that that was just too much. But is that really what Jesus is saying? No, because what he's trying to tell Judas is that I have come in this form and you won't get this opportunity to anoint me, to prepare me for my burial again. And in fact, they didn't, did they? By the time they were able to take him down off the cross and get him into the tomb, the sun was going down and they had to go in, so they couldn't properly do it beforehand. Isn't it amazing that Mary had already done it? Of course, then Joseph comes back with several hundred pounds of the stuff because he's going to do it right. You know, <laughs> it always amazes me. But, um, but 
here, he, what he's saying is that Mary has done the right thing because she has embraced my death. Not, you know, fix my fixing people. Not my healing people. Not feeding the poor. And it's not that any of those things are bad. It's just that they're not what's in front of us. What's in front of us is my death. And I won't be here anymore. You know, it's interesting, this little side comment that we get from John. It says, not that he cared about the poor, but he was a thief. Not that John had any feelings about that or anything. <laughs> he said, you steal money from the, the collection box all the time. You know, I, it's an interesting little tidbit. We don't have any idea what that has to do anything with, or what Judas did with the money he stole from the collection box. But John wanted to make sure that we knew that he wasn't really interested in the poor. It's much like the kind of people you see today who drive around in Land Rovers and talk about how, you know, people need to care more about the poor and give more, you know, and, and do more to help people. Or they have private jets and push people to help the poor. You know, it's sell your jet. <laughs> but the question isn't so much whether or not they're doing it or whether or not you should help the poor. It's about are you doing what's necessary? Because the truth is, is that, yes, we need to help the poor. And yes, she needed to anoint Jesus. It's not that one was right and one was wrong. So how do you know? How do you know? Well, the problem for Judas was that he was on autopilot. He had looked at this logically. Logically, you don't pour $30,000 worth of perfume on somebody's feet. You know, if you really want to do a nice job, go buy the $100 bottle of perfume. And that would be more than sufficient. But don't go get the $30,000 one. But he knows better, doesn't he? He's looked at what it is that Jesus is about and is doing and is telling Jesus, this is all wrong. You have got it wrong. And that's the danger of autopilot. Because we too can fall into that as we wander through the wilderness of our sin. As we read the scriptures, are we willing to submit ourselves to it, the word? Or do we put ourselves over the word and go, well, that doesn't really apply now. Or that's not really what that means. You know, I know it says that, but that's not what it means. Because obviously God has a problem with saying what he means. Well, no. It also is, a, is an incredibly prideful thing in that we can easily fall into the trap of assuming that we have come so far on our spiritual journey and become so enlightened and so brilliant that God could never surprise us. And yet in Isaiah, God says, my ways are not your ways. See, the, the truth is, is that we always need to be opening up our lives every day to ask the Lord, what is it that you would have for me? Constantly waiting for a, a word from the Lord. I can remember when I first felt called to the, to the ministry. I didn't know it was priesthood at that point, but, but when I first felt called, you know what I did? I didn't, no, I didn't even do that. I, just, uh, I didn't tell anybody for three years because I thought that's crazy. So I took philosophy classes. That makes sense, right? But, you know, I, I wasn't going to tell anybody that, that God wanted me to be a minister. For one thing, I didn't even go to church, so why would he want me to be a minister? That seemed kind of dumb to me. 
And it wasn't until three years later that I ever told anybody. And it wasn't until five years after that that I finally agreed to go to seminary. And I still, by the way, hadn't agreed I was going to do it. I can remember after I took the ordination exams, the bishop came for Holy Week at, at the seminary and was visiting, and we went out to breakfast. And I said, Bishop, do you think I ought to be ordained? And he said, if you don't know by now, you're in trouble. <laughs> I said, well, it's not that I don't know. It's just that I don't feel worthy to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm really not, I don't feel equipped to do that. You know, I haven't learned enough to be smart enough to do that. And he said, good. I said, good? And he goes, yes, don't forget that. He said, because after you get out for a while, you start thinking you're really smart. That's when you get in trouble. And he was right. Because we can become people who run on autopilot. We become experts in our field. But we forget that whatever our field is, and isn't it really God's field? Didn't he really create it all? 